You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. You are now listening to New Models. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we'll be speaking with three members of the Collapsology Crude Futures Group, an entity that formed in the New Models Discord and that was initiated by Richard Hames, co-author with Alex Roberts of the 2022 Polity Books title, The Rise of Ecofascism, Climate Change in the Far Right. This summer, Crude Futures published a zine and a card game, which beyond being nice objects in their own right, a physical archive of this particular moment of collapsed discourse. They're primarily tools for others to tell the story of how a world collapses and to role-play ways of navigating that transition. Some listeners may already have the zine and game in hand. They're available now at shop.newmodels.io. But for this episode, we chatted with two of the zine's authors, returning guest Richard Hames, as well as writer Bo Caprice-Vetch, to discuss their essays in the Crude Futures project. Additionally, we're sharing with you an excerpt from a piece written and read aloud by musician and journalist Jake Colvin, who recorded his piece from a permaculture farm far enough off the grid he had to take a short hike in order to transmit it to us. A common New Model's refrain is the disillusion of media infrastructure, the disillusion of long-standing conceptions of the public sphere, And so it's both fitting and ironic that a group focused around ideas of collapse would give us such a rich example of what can be built when alternative infrastructure is offered. We're thrilled that projects like Collapsology's Crude Futures can exist within the New Model's context. The printing of the zine and card game was funded with proceeds from our previous publication, the New Model's Y2K20 Codex, and sales from Collapsology's Crude Futures will in turn fund whatever our community dreams up next. We want to extend our thanks to everyone involved and listening here for supporting. But enough of the preamble. I'm Lil Internet joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guests are Richard Hames, Bo Caprice Vetch, and Jake Colvin of the Collapsology Crude Futures Group. Let's get into it. This summer at Trauma Bar and Kino, we had the pleasure of being able to speak publicly with some of the people behind Crude Futures Collapsology, a group that started in the New Models Discord a couple years ago, and that has since gone on to create its own substack and its own zine, and in fact, also its own game. And so we thought we would get on a call with a few of the people who were part of this group. We're starting off speaking with Richard, aka in the Discord, Crude Futures, the Crude Futures behind Crude Futures. So Richard, thanks for joining us today. Hello. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I should just at the outset say that I did not choose the name. It was a, I haven't just named it a book after myself. It was a collective decision and it just happened to be that the crew future seemed to the democratically constituted collective as the best name. Well, it is the best Self-titled first album. Yeah, self-titled first album, right. (laughs) Richard is also an author in his own right. We interviewed Richard, who was working under the pseudonym Sam Moore for The Rise of Ecofascism by Polity, which came out in 2022, and uh, recommends people go back and listen to that for some deeper thinking on that subject. But today, we're going to speak about the Project Crude Futures, the zine that came out, and the game, and some work that will eventually also become a book if the rumor is true. I hope the rumors are true. At the moment, we have to instantiate the rumors in a proposal and then send it off to a publisher, and the publisher will decide if the rumor is true. Okay, so it's definitely true. Okay. (laughs) Maybe as a way of beginning, I mean, if one reads the Crude Futures zine, which is available at shop.newmodels.io, your opening statement is one which I find really refreshing. You basically say, the notion of collapse is banal. The idea of collapse is something that has been part of the human experience since the beginning of time. Maybe the question here is why start a group in our Discord about collapse if collapse is so banal? What was it about the idea of collapse or what is your framing of collapse that made this an exciting venture and why do you think people responded to it beyond the 
reason that it sounds apocalyptic and exciting. But like, as you say, in a sense, it's also banal. In some ways, the history of apocalyptic thinking or the history of declaring that the apocalypse is imminent is quite a marginal history. So most people who have taken on the kind of the figure of the Cassandra, which is this person whose prophecies of doom are destined to be not believed, most people who have taken on that role have been pretty marginal to the societies in which they've they've lived. One can think of the Munster Rebellion, the Anabaptists' declaration that the end times were imminent. And what's strange and unique now is that we have this institution, the IPCC, who are in some ways the quintessential modern institution. It's a globally spanning network of scientists from across the globe who produce these synthetic reports out of data that is accumulated from the most technically sophisticated instruments you can possibly imagine from across the entire world. They run all those data points through gigantic computer simulations and we produce this sort of fact or this prediction, Mm. which is that there is the serious risk of social disarray in the next kind of 50 to 100 years. That strikes me as a quite different epistemic vantage point. What is interesting about it. And what is interesting about, say, for example, the UFO phenomena Mm. that you were talking about with Trevor Pagelin on the previous episode, is that in some ways, there's been this sort of moat, what I describe as the moat of cringe, (laughs) sort of developed around UFOlogy, right? So Richard Doty, this uh, counterintelligence officer, has deliberately made it so that engaging with UFOlogy is cringe and sort of not the kind of thing that a serious person would do. And in the same way, we have a sort of motive cringe around collapsology, mm. right? It is understood as a marginal pursuit, even though the empirical bases for that prediction are absolutely central to our contemporary society in the form of climate modeling, the IPCC. And so you will see this all the time. People describe how bad climate change is going to get, and then they in some ways refuse to make the inference that leaps them from that collection of predictions to this cringe consequence of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that gap, thinking about the relationship of the prestigious science of climate science to the cringe science, the marginal science of collapsology, right? Thinking about that gap is in some ways like an interesting thing to do. Mm. And in some ways, the new models community and the new models discord was the perfect place to enter into that gap, both the space of extremely high throughput of empirical verification and to some extent a kind of a marginal but also very open space for exploring new forms of thought that are not particularly uh, well respected elsewhere. (laughs) I like that definition of the new models community. You know, one of the interesting things you do is that you think about collapse in a very particular way. You think about it, for one, as a social object. So already you're not just thinking about like the cinematic fantasy of collapse, you're thinking about what is the function of the notion of collapse in society? And getting that a little bit of like meta distance maybe allows you to position yourself differently. I know something that Bo speaks about, and he's looking to people like Jason Moore and Chris Shaw, who's the author of this upcoming book, Liberalism and the Challenge of Climate Change, is that collapse, the notion of collapse, tends to serve a certain function in society that upholds the norm. You know, as much as you can say, like, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, neoliberalism will say, yes, the fact that you can say the sky is falling is why our system is so good. So it serves a reinforcing role as opposed to one that gets us outside of the current ways of thinking. So could you maybe say a word about how you think about collapse, how you set out to approach it in this group? So if we think about traditional collapseology, what we would counterpose to our own construction, which you might think of as kind of critical collapseology, if we think about traditional collapseology, The main narrative that it tells is that there are social systems and that they serve generally the common good and that they are organised in such a way as to take energy from the world, systematise that into sort of social complexity, and then what happens in the collapsological narrative is that a crisis comes along that means that that social system falls apart. And this is simply untenable for the contemporary world. Crisis is not the thing that threatens capitalism. Crisis is the lifeblood mm-hmm. of, of capitalism. It is what it thrives on. And so if we're going to try and apply these lessons that are extrapolated from the Roman Empire, from Easter Island, from the collapse of North Greenland settlements, from you know all the manner of things that across all manner of different civilizations across history and their declines, if we're going to extrapolate from those, we need to have this like crucial transformation, this crucial difference, right? Which is that in some ways, the thing that causes all other societies to collapse is the thing that allows capitalism to survive. Hmm. To give a really kind of concrete example of this or a concrete prediction about this, I would not be surprised at all 
If in the next five to 10 years, someone of Elon Musk's ilk, perhaps Elon Musk himself, mm. is in some ways given social permission to do something, perhaps geoengineering, perhaps some sort of massive re-engineering of the global economy, in order to prevent collapse. Mm -hmm. And so the question I think for us is like, how does collapse appear as an object for governance? How does it appear as a thing that is deliberately avoided? In some ways, it's possible to think about fascism as a thing that the three big social formations of the post-war era were all trying to avoid. It's just they had totally different notions of what fascism was. So the Soviet system is obviously anti-fascist. It's trying to suppress and repress fascism in society, particularly, of course, in East Germany. The neoliberal system is trying to get away from fascism, which it views as this sort of horrifying excess of democracy by suppressing democracy in society. The social democratic tradition is trying to get away from fascism by providing the means of life for people so they don't adopt these extreme political views. Mm. And so they have different views of what fascism is, they produce different societies. In the same way, we can understand that there's going to be a panoply of ways in which collapse is figured, and that people will try and act in order to prevent that collapse from happening. So that's be my kind of social prediction about the way in which collapse will appear in the formations of the contemporary political world. So just a quick methodological question. What was your strategy in setting up this group? So one of the issues with collapse, that there are so many ways you can approach it. And with, you know, this systemic disintegration, I mean, where to begin? And I think a lot of people feel like they don't even have agency in this conversation. So can you take us through what kind of infrastructure you mutually developed or what you decided your goals were initially? Because you ended up producing a fantastic zine and a fantastic card game, which are seriously useful. Like they give us some really good material, some good anchors. So yeah, how did you think through that? That's very kind of you. Thank you. So Bo and I have been talking about this afterwards in this kind of book project. This sense that there is no particularly good, clear place to begin is what we describe as the problem of the indeterminate totality. So society just appears to us as just like a massive number of things, right? And the question is, well, which one do you think is most significant? Mm. Which one do you think is going to collapse first? And traditional collapsology approaches this problem by trying to identify the core system. So on the one hand, we have the core system of the energy system, which strikes me as a plausible candidate. Energy is very important in society, and that's how societies sort of run. But of course, there are many other things besides. There's also the sense that we might get in some of the kind of more reactionary collapsologies, where, for example, you see gender roles. Mm. So, for example, lots of the trans panic now, as it's becoming this almost sort of fever pitch, particularly in the US, is about the fact that we can't reproduce our society without the traditional gender roles. Mm. And in some sense, that kind of trans panic is understandable as a sort of a reactionary collapsology. Society is going to fall apart because there are trans people, right? And obviously, I don't find that nearly as plausible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't find that particularly plausible at all. So there is this question of how to isolate something in society such that we can like explain the collapse of society through that thing. And the way that we approach that question is in two ways in the magazine. One is that we don't really get to a single solution to that. What we have instead is this collection of people, and this is why the New Model server, again, was such a generative environment, because it has a group of really quite diverse, quite different people with very different interests. There are things in the magazine that I do not support, that I do not agree with. <laughs> there are things in the magazine that I think are a sort of byproduct of other things in the magazine, right? I think there's this sort of complicated hierarchization, but I acknowledge that there's a sort of democratic aspect to mm -hmm. the, the way in which one puts together something like this. The second way, and the way that I propose in the magazine, to approach this question of how to amalgamate or organise all these different threads is through the notion of the institution. I describe an institution as a gully formation in state space. So a gully is like a kind of a ravine that has been formed by water flowing through it. And the idea is that when systems are in certain kinds of states, they fall down the sides of this ravine into a limited set of outcomes, mm. right? And so we have this notion of the institution that captures the world, that takes parts of systems that would otherwise kind of bounce about all over the place and funnels them towards particular goals. And once we have this level of abstraction, I think that it becomes much more easy in some ways to pose the question of how, say, energy or social harmony or environmental coherence works in order to influence that institutional form. I want to illustrate a bit more 
what you're talking about here with the metaphor of gullies and state space, because I found it really useful. State space, I believe you described it as like a cube in three dimensions. And if you think of complexity spread out all over the place in a 3D space, the gully, so to say, like this ravine, attracts and condenses and removes friction from complex, Hmm. more randomly distributed things, right? Absolutely. So let's take a really concrete example, the schooling system. So the schooling system in any major industrialized economy starts with a bunch of randomly scattered objects, children, (laughs) (laughs) preschool children, who are just kind of different in like lots of different heterogeneous ways. And the, the skeptical notion, I think, of that schooling system, and indeed the kind of description of what it does, is to it takes this massive random collection of things, which are children in all their diversity, and at least at a minimal level, it funnels and directs those into a particular single kind of thing, right? a disciplined object, a person with a certain set of skills, a person with a certain ability to participate in the adult world in different ways. One kind of crucial thing that pops out of that is this notion, in some ways, lots of institutions function through failure. You can imagine in this gully in state space, as children are like little particles of water flowing down towards being useful adults. There are lots of ways they can fall through the state space into other places. Or maybe there's even a kind of a, a pipeline in the institution that takes them to somewhere else, right? That is not a productive member of society. This is the, the school-to-prison pipeline, mm. right? And so one can imagine that in lots of contemporary institutions, they function through their capacity to generate certain kinds of states of failure. So it's not just that they're completely unified in the way in which they gather all the different heterogeneous things towards a single unity, but that they produce different kind of chaotic states at the end as well as at the beginning. So if we imagine like a mountain system with like a gully and you have the snow melt, some of that is going to end up in an aquifer, some of that is going to end up in whatever plant system. And then at the end, the majority of it or enough of it will create a forest, which can even further downstream power a hydroelectric dam. So it's a really useful analogy for how institutions work. Yeah. And then the question becomes in some ways, like how do we understand the object of collapse mm. through this. Right. Like, what would a collapse be in a river system? Right? It's, not, it's not entirely clear to me how exactly that works. But one thing you might think about is this sort of the erosion of the mountains mm. or the permeability of the soil. Mm-hmm. Right? So as the water, say, falls through the soil, it stops being useful. It goes into kind of the deep structure of the earth right. and then you can't use it anymore, right? Things fall out of being useful for other systems. Things are no longer... The hydroelectric dam either floods over or it dries up right. the, the reservoir that it relies on or the hydroelectric dam itself cracks. And so you can use these kind of different analogous ways of thinking to explain or understand the different diversities of kinds of crises that might not be productive for a society in the way I was saying that they generally are earlier, but that have such a scale, such a breadth, that they actually overflow the way in which the society organizes complexity into determinate social forms. One thing I appreciate is you, I think the introduction, where we're so accustomed to seeing hockey stick graphs of things proliferating, things getting hotter, temperatures rising, sea level rising, storms increasing. And you say, well, what if we think about collapse in terms of what stops? What is like stopped happening? So in a way, it's like the silent part of it. It's like, what things do we not see anymore? But maybe we could transition to talking about your piece. You open your piece talking about scurvy, to quote you, one of the most feared diseases of the age of sail. (laughs) Um, And it took until 1753, uh, James Lind, a surgeon in the Royal Navy, discovered it could be treated with citrus fruit. But for hundreds of years before that point, up to half of sailors on a voyage would die from scurvy. You propose using scurvy as a metaphor, saying that there is some social scurvy that could lead to the decay of the health of a society. I mean, I think we should just take a second to say like what scurvy does to a body. Because I think it it was something that I knew, yeah, citrus solves scurvy and you get sick. But the idea of the dissolution of the body without vitamin C, that the body, the skin literally cannot form collagen without vitamin C. So scars split open. Scars split open. Repaired and held together. All the traumas of the body like then like just fall apart, right? Scurvy is a crisis of of scorbrotic deficiency. That means that the body can't form enough collagen. And collagen is in some ways 
the thing that holds the body together. So it's famously, of course, in your nose, but it's also in your, all the parts of your skin. It's in all the parts of like every single organ, right? It's the basic unit of binding. So this goes back to the thing that we don't even notice that is keeping everything in society going. So what happens in scurvy is that the body doesn't produce enough vitamin C. And that means that the skin starts to become weaker. But it also crucially means that scars, which are, although they look similar on the skin, are actually different forever, made of different stuff, much higher collagen content. As the body withdraws collagen from those in order to put it onto the central organs where it's more important, all of the scars, all of the tiny little cuts that you've had for your entire life reopen and your body starts to bruise and to bleed to death, right? And so as your body tries to defend itself from not having enough collagen, it simply kills you by accident. And that's how scurvy works on the body. The reason why that's a kind of useful social metaphor, right, is the is the idea that there is this skin membrane on society that we don't even recognise its fundamental importance. And as we enter a sort of a crisis of the capacity to reproduce institutions, and there are lots of candidates for why that might be, we withdraw support from the skin to the central organs, and then that ultimately ends up sort of killing us. And so our own defense mechanisms end up terminating the society, mm. even as we try and defend it, right? And so that's one of the central problems of collapsology, right, is that it might end up proposing a path that ends up actually destroying itself, which is, you know, it would be historical tragedy, but not uncommon. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to ask, particularly about scurvy, and perhaps it figures into this metaphor is for some reason learning about scurvy like in third grade sticks in your mind forever and one of the things that I think has bothered me since I was a small child is that it took so long for them to figure out that certain foods could just prevent this from happening and there must have been people who lived on the ship because they liked rosehip tea or something and I never quite understood how nobody figured it out. And I'm guessing it's just because that sort of correlation, the idea of nutrition in the body just didn't exist. It was a total blind spot for them. And that's why it took hundreds of years to figure out. I wonder if you use this metaphor, though, because you also think that there's some kind of blind spot to that degree in terms of thinking of the solution or finding the vitamin C for society. And do you have an idea of what that blind spot might be? But I, I don't know if you think that aspect of it figures into the metaphor or if you have an idea of what that realm that we are essentially cognitively blind to might be. There are lots of candidates. I think the reason why people didn't engage with scurvy or regarded as really a serious problem for a long time was because people didn't travel nearly so far, mm. right? So it's only in the period when sailing goes around the world, when the Portuguese sail from Portugal to India mm -hmm. around the whole of Africa, and therefore they enter into this period where they have several month-long voyages. That's when scurvy starts to bite. And of course, before that, people died of scurvy all the time, but they were commoners, mm -hmm. right? Whose diets were not as diverse and therefore we didn't really care. And in a similar sense... We might say that we've been deliberately collapsing societies all the time, right? The continental United States is built on the collapse of the previous mm -hmm. societies that lived there. There's a massive genocide that happens that in order that the continental United States can exist. The war in Iraq is what we describe as a sort of applied collapsology, right? The point was to destroy the society. The point was to pull it apart and therefore reconstruct a new society on top of it. There is this other tradition of collapsology that in some ways has much clearer notions of what it is that takes to construct a society. And in my piece, that's the candidate I start with, trust. And because that is the way in which counterinsurgency has often understood itself to be kind of operating at. If we look at the history of British counterinsurgency in, for example, Malaysia in the 1950s, the point was to shred social trust in order that there was no one else who anyone could turn to. Like, you couldn't form these kind of militia groups because you simply didn't trust anyone mm -hmm. around you. And so if we're trying to reverse engineer, in some ways, the deliberate process of collapse that has served counterinsurgents, then the things we would focus on are the capacity of agents to trust each other, are the capacity of people to engage in non-zero-sum games. The problem is, what scale of society might we think about the structure of? Mm -hmm. We live both in national units and 
in the globe. Mm -hmm. We are all talking to each other on laptops that were, of course, as everyone knows, designed in California, actually put together in Taiwan. The source parts are from Central Africa Mm -hmm. and so on, right? There's lots of kind of complicating things that organize us into a single thing, but at the same time, produce these divisions in the world that disallow us from seeing each other as agents in the single society. And this is where we get to the other consideration in thinking about critical collapsology, which is that most collapsology does a sort of risk assessment because it is trying to maintain present society Mm -hmm. as it is. I'm not trying to maintain present society as it is, right? My political interests are not in this world. They are in the thing that this world makes possible, Mm -hmm. but also at the same time denies, which is namely universalism. And so that's where I see the sort of the political stakes of collapse. Uh We have the possibility of having a universal humanity. And at the same time, it's denied. But I think that a collapse would not be a good thing, right? I think that a collapse would actually prevent us even more so from attaining that kind of political universalism. Although it is denied by the contemporary institutions, the possibility of it is also produced by these institutions. And so critical collapsology ends up in this really Mm. complicated situation. Yeah, that's a helpful way of putting it. I think you speak about institutions as the kind of capillaries to the social body. And in some way, we need those institutions in order to have some kind of coherence that allows us to function at all and to even aspire to a kind of universalism. You know, something we'll explore a little bit more with Bo when we speak with him is this difference between the biopolitical framework of a planet and the geopolitical framework of a world and how any attempt at resilience in the kind of collapse that's on us already is probably going to involve destruction of some worlds as we realign to the planet and its realities. And something you say that has been resonating between your piece and Bo's piece is this idea of, as you already articulated, institutions create a kind of simplicity. They manage things. They create coherency. And when they break apart, they release with it all of that complexity that they had handled and some whatever new complexities that just by the fact that they exist, they enabled. So it's like complexity squared that they unleash back into the world. So even just having that model, it's not enough to just be like a doomer and be like, bring on collapse. We need a model that actually understands how complexity works. But I like this idea of institutions as like simplifying and then releasing that complexity back. Yes. I mean, you know, Julian, you use the analogy of a forest. You know, it takes up carbon when right, it's plants like the are... the argument about ethanol, right? They're like, it's a green fuel because you plant all of this corn to make ethanol, but of course, like all of the carbon captured by that corn gets released once it's burned as ethanol. Right, right, right. So someone who's really clear on this and really useful to think about this sort of, what we might think of as a dialectic of encapsulation and disencapsulation, Mm. which just for kind of colour, I think of sometimes as having your liver explode, yeah. right? Your liver is like doing loads of things in your body that like organises complexity. These kind of complex chemicals that you ingest for, possibly by accident, possibly deliberately as part of your diet, right? Then the liver processes and organises and makes available to the rest of your body. Your liver explodes, you're like, you're really fucked. Yeah. But someone who thinks about this really well and about this kind of tension or this kind of loop in some ways is friend of the pod, Stephanie Wakefield, oh, for sure. who talks yeah. about what she calls in her book Anthropocene Backloop, which everyone should go and read. I think it's the Holling cycle. So Holling is this Swedish biologist or ecologist who describes the way in which nutrients are in some phases of an ecology, trapped or captured by organisms. And then there are fewer nutrients for other organisms to engage with. And so that's the kind of the peak of complexity, the peak of organization. And then some of those organisms die, decay, spill their stuff, their complexity back into the environment. And that leads to a new phase in which other organisms can come along or indeed evolve Mm. in order to capture those nutrients again. And we move back through the loop. Mm. So we have this kind of figure of eight cycle in which we capture and then discapture and capture and discapture. That is the process of contemporary society, I think. The production of crisis, the production of a new institution to organize the crisis, the production of a new crisis from that institution, and so on. You can think about this happening at lots of different scales. Collapse is a sort of a dislocation of that figure Mm. of eight, right? It's a sort of a way in which the scale of complexity that is regurgitated, like if your liver exploded, the scale of that complexity is such that the social whole is disintegrated. And I think that climate change is probably the only thing I can think of apart from obvious candidates like an asteroid (sighs) hitting the earth or like a nuclear war or like a super volcano. You know, these kind of slightly fantastical stuff. Nuclear war, obviously not fantastical, (sighs) could happen. 
I hope not. You know, that kind of thing. Climate change is the kind of thing that produces a crisis of escalating complexity above the speed at which that complexity can be recaptured by new institutions. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it's some sort of absolute limit or some sort of absolute doom, but the question is how to accelerate that process of institutional capture of that complexity Mm -hmm. in such a way I think Mm -hmm. that is kind of equitable. And so the question then becomes how to avert collapse becomes one of institutional design and institutional flexibility such that new forms of complexity can always be integrated in different ways without hopefully producing this pathological system where institutions themselves actually produce more complexity than they capture which is how i would argue something like a military tends to Uh function right right? not by capturing and organizing complexity in the world but merely displacing and organizing that kind of complexity elsewhere totally both at all different levels american healthcare system would also absolutely that for sure so with that model in place are there particular institutions or particular areas of institutional experimentation or development that you're looking to right now that you think we should be paying attention to or you find promising? And perhaps to extend this question, obviously one could imagine, I don't know, something like the blockchain as trying to outsource (laughs) the issue of trust in society to a technological solution, which of course would make society entirely dependent on this technological structure. But do you believe that there are institutions rooted in society, rather technological solutions as well, that could address well, this? Wait, but technology is always rooted in society, so... Human institutions versus uh-huh. computational okay. institutions. Okay. It's a pretty good question. Um, <laughs> I don't have an answer to that question. I will think about that. That's a really important question for like the next stage of the project. Yeah, buy the book and you'll yeah, find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, the answer to that question is in the zine, but it's encrypted in the zine. It's not actually <laughs> said in the zine anyway. You, have to... you need to read the clues. and uh... <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. So Richard, thank you for your time. Everybody go buy the Crude Futures zine that will prepare you for the next stage to come and help you make a little yes. bit more sense of this world. And uh, There's also the limited edition version with How It Happens card game and a poster from Matis Groskoff-Manis. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to find out for yourself the answer to that final question of what institutions one should be turning to, then playing the card game is the best <laughs> yes. way of getting there. <laughs> That's right. You can think through for yourself and with your friend group of the path there and critical thinking is what's required of all of us in this. I think it's <laughs> it's fantastic. Coco agrees. <laughs> okay. Good talk to Goodbye. you. Ciao. See you soon. Thank Ciao. you very much. Bye-bye. We are also joined today by Bo Caprisvatch, who is another core member of the Collapsology Crude Futures Group. Bo lives in rural Washington state, which we're all very jealous of, and he works as a writer, and he has a piece in the Crude Futures zine called Planet Out of Joint. Bo, with Richard, is also working on a book project that will formalize some of these ideas. So, Bo, welcome to the New Models Pod, and thank you so much for all that you've done in the server. In thinking about ideas of collapse. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I guess as a way of beginning, we just spoke with Richard about the formation of the Collapsology Group and this great way that you all started your introduction of the zine, saying that collapse is actually a pretty mundane thing. It's exciting as it sounds. It's something that's been with us for a very long time. And as a way of beginning, maybe you could tell us how you first came to this subject and why you joined this group. Yeah, I have a background and like long-term interest in systems theory and complexity. And there's sort of a lot of overlap there in thinking about what makes a system do well or survive, what kind of dynamics are successful and sustainable versus like what kind of dynamics make a system collapse. Yeah, so in your essay, Planet Out of Joint, you open with this dialectic that opposes a geopolitical idea of a world versus a biopolitical idea of a planet and how the collapse of a geopolitical world is actually something different than the collapse of a planet. And yet they are necessarily completely interlinked. You point to Jason Moore, an environmental historian at Binghamton University, and I assume also Chris Shaw, who's the author of this forthcoming book, Liberalism and the Challenge of Climate Change, where they set up this idea that like capitalism or more specifically a neoliberal iteration of capitalism is actually helped 
by traditional climate activism, where it reinforces an idea that neoliberalism is good because it allows you to express yourself freely and you as an individual can choose to make the planet better. And then you go on in your essay to show how that is preventing us from thinking differently about this. Yeah. So I guess with my piece, it begins with me reflecting on, on the one hand, there's all of these climate disasters happening around the world that are sort of these very like visible manifestations of what we might consider a collapse process. And on the other hand, there's all of these technological innovations. There's like this breakthrough in nuclear fusion. And so there's competing narratives between climate systems breakdown on one side and like the promise for technologies to solve those problems on the other side. And it makes it hard from a personal, like subjective perspective to orient towards a vision of the future when you can't reconcile these two versions of the future. Implicit to that framing is what kinds of worlds are we trying to preserve? Mm -hmm. And like, what are the conditions that those worlds like depend on? I've been thinking a lot recently about how the internet gives us the perception that all of humanity is in one world, or at least makes imagining a single coherent world of shared sensitivities, values, and ideals possible. But I also think that idea of a single coherent world is maybe what led to like the gulags and genocides and mass purges of the 20th century. I mean, there was a pluralism of worlds in balance with nature before the Industrial Revolution. But do you think today a plurality of worlds that all strive to exist in balance with the planet is actually possible? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a hard question. The concept of the Anthropocene, it invokes this like universal anthropos that is collectively responsible for climate change and the effects of industrial modernity. And in doing that, it obscures the accountability. There's very historically specific actors that are disproportionately accountable for these things. And so from that perspective, it's very hard to think about a universal humanity as a political subject in some sense. I kind of see that as like this tension between like, no, there is no universal humanity. And then from a biophysical perspective, if you look at the whole history of the planet and like of life itself, there are these sort of measurable ways in which life has transformed the planet and humans arguably have an exceptional degree of agency to change the planet. But I think that agency lacks a subjectivity, you know, is there like a possible universal subject politically in the future? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think so. What would that look like if you were to free associate what some of the qualities of that universal subject would be? What would that non-fascist universal subject would be? <laughs> yeah. And would it even be human? And would it even be human? Good point. Right. I think for me anyways, to sort of get to that point of the universality, you'd have to go beyond the human and go back to the origins of life and think about these processes that are universal to life. For instance? The transition from purely thermodynamic physical causality to information processing as having some degree of control over matter, like in a very mm. fundamental sense. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that's one path towards thinking about universality. Right. I would imagine also there being something in like life and death cycles. Under the neoliberal order, we have this idea that we preserve life at all costs, but really we just externalize death onto other things or onto the future. Yeah. And so we survive longer or healthier or better within certain boundaries, both temporal and geographical. I mean, other, of course, it's easy to build up other cultures, but you think about a Tibetan culture, which believes the soul sort of passes through many bodies and it has a different conception of what life cycles are. And one thing that's interesting to me about climate change narratives is that they are very Western neoliberal focused. And what we're preserving, to go back to your world versus planet dialectic, is there so much about preserving a certain world as opposed to a biodiverse planet, which will involve violence on a certain level, natural life and death cycles. And so one wonders, reading your piece, if part of what's out of joint isn't just like our carbon emissions, which of course are a huge problem, but also just our basic understanding of like what life cycles are or what 
what these, as you say, these like primitive checks and balances of life are and a, a different understanding of a different tolerance, a different set of tolerances. I just happened to see on Twitter when you mentioned Jason Moore, this tweet thread by Chris Shaw of this upcoming book, but it seemed so in tune with some of the things you were talking about. And he also brings up how when we speak about one world or one universal subject that would have agency, it's always skewing towards the Western world, which is controlling the capitalist cycles and under the pretense that this reduces harm, this makes life better for people. But again, within which boundaries, within which time frame? I mean, I wonder when you think about positive ways of organizing or acting, where do you look? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think any sort of arrival at a contemporary universality is always going to be compromised because it's constructed through this Western hegemonic ontology. And I think one of the things that comes out of that is the form and function and possibilities for technology. Mm-hmm, right. All of the technologies we depend on and structure the world today and Many of them are these products of industrial modernity, and they're optimized towards these particular kinds of worlds. But at the same time, it's also possible that in the way that technologies extend our perception, like even though they are constructed within the limits of this historical framework, they also allow us to see those limits and possibly be able to move beyond them. That's interesting. And it's like, okay, so you think of something like AI, it's allowed to model things much faster, but yet in being able to iterate and model into the future, we can then understand what world it delimits and then choose perhaps to move in a different direction if we want to. Additionally, AI, I think, is the only thing that could meet a condition you pose at the end of your essay of what would it look like if there were a subjectivity to match the scale of planetary systems. And I think AI might be the only thing capable of actually making sense on the scale of planetary complexity. If it's able to create a data set, though, that's like broad enough. That's another question. And where do you come out on this, Bo? You know, I I think I'm a little bit skeptical of the potentials of AI at this Mm -hmm. point. And I feel like in some ways, the scale of the problem is like so big and so hard to imagine that it kind of takes on divine proportions. Mm -hmm. And we're returning to this mythic narrative of a technology that is going to save us. And it does have these like very magical properties. But another way of thinking about that subjectivity is actually like the biosphere. Hmm. But I'm not sure how that could possibly like translate into a politics. But I think that is a perspective that's worth considering. Yeah. If you retuned the economy towards some holistic thriving of the biosphere, right Right. now profit as this like abstraction that actually has no connection to material reality anymore whatsoever. As we know from crypto and NFTs, really the best example you could ever hope for of how detached money is from anything material. I mean, I mean there, no, I mean, like oil still has a dollar per barrel, US dollar per that's barrel. That's material. That. Right. So there still are portions of economic exchange of which are tied to material. But you've definitely gotten to a point where it's now trading futures on super abstract objects that don't have a material basis. Right. Right. So maybe we are seeing the signs, or do you think we might be seeing signs of some limit of profit as an organizing concept being reached? Uh, I mean, I think as a global paradigm, at some point, it's going to create problems when the claims made on the future are like contingent on like continued economic growth. And that economic growth, it has to recouple to the material basis of the economy in a sense. Yeah, I think that is an inevitable problem. I think the way that capitalism could persist in many places would actually like look a lot like collapse mm. in the sense that some of the like most successful forms that are able to like come in and take on functions of a state when the state fails to meet the needs of subjects are cartels and mafia organizations. Mm-hmm these pretty reactionary form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I could see like a lot of different possibilities. Any good ones? Um, (laughs) 
I mean, personally, I think that there's a lot of value in the anarchist disaster response strategy, which is based around this idea of mutual aid and the idea of like forming robust parastate networks of support in advance of states failing. So a dual power model. Yeah, kind of, totally. Right now, you are seeing a kind of dual power emerge, which is maybe not the kind that you're speaking of, where you have VC-adjacent entities interested in setting up their own city-states because they want to bypass the bureaucratic bloat and ideological barriers of states. Do you imagine that model has to do with the way that we're going to reorganize around the climate future to come? I definitely see different iterations of that. That's kind of like the 2.0 version of like the billionaire survival bunker, right? right? It's like that was the trend for a while and now it's moving in like a slightly more communal direction where there's these like billionaire bunker islands or something like that. With hot 20-somethings. Yeah. But I mean, I think like in some ways that's reflective of a very possible political paradigm that will emerge around the militarization of borders in the developed world and the sort of insulation of the capitalized classes from the global south and the idea of a leftist alternative to that in some ways sounds very like romantic and appealing but in other ways it being an exclusive, isolated island that's point is to withdraw, to me at least, feels kind of antithetical to the leftist impulse. Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) When a disaster occurs, people generally engage in practices of mutual aid far more than you would expect. Yeah, that's true. Based on non-disaster times. However, it's very hard to sustain. Yeah. So I think actually the project of feeding it before the disaster occurs. Setting up those pathways. Might make it more resilient. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think when the conditions of the state that we like rely on for like protection and support fail, there's an obligation to rise to that occasion and help your neighbor. And like, you've gone through this collective trauma. And so actually maybe we can think about the disaster as like already happening and like unfolding at a slower pace through these historical processes of colonization and Mm -hmm. capitalism. So this is a very edgy question, but uh, I have this like innate problematic response sometimes to climate change narratives or maybe the concept of it that I kind of have to actively push myself back from, but I want to present it to you and hear your thoughts on it. The belief that human technology is capable of holistically sensing and accurately modeling planetary systems could be seen as just another example of the sort of extreme hubris and anthropocentrism, the product of the Western scientific world itself, when in fact our technology is crude and simple and can't grasp the actual complexity of the guy in our planetary systems. Cycles of ice house and greenhouse earths and extreme climate events will happen with or without human intervention. And any aim of a green transition cannot be disentangled from a overarching aim of human domination and control over the systems of the planet, whether climate or the biosphere. So I don't know, there's some voice in my head that pokes me with this, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And I want to know your response to that thought. Well, yeah, I mean, the ways that we sort of model climate systems or earth systems or like the biosphere in order to make predictions about how many degrees of warming are okay. Even the IPCC models are like self-aware of that. So, I mean, yeah. (laughs) I mean, maybe by extension, though, is there another narrative other than we accurately have modeled the planetary systems and we know that we are changing the climate? Is there another narrative that you find also could motivate society, humanity, to act more in balance with 
just the biosphere, say, instead of t- putting the focus on the biosphere. The planet as opposed to the world. Quiet. Again, the biopolitically yes. defined planet mm. as opposed to the geopolitically defined world. That's a good question. I think the connection between the necessity of economic growth and the possibility of life getting better in the future for more people is like a very implicit narrative when we think about climate change and modeling and the future and the biophysical constraints of how much energy it takes to just be a person in the developed world. I mean, one speed round question, I mean, it's a hard question. (laughs) So if there was one thing that would reduce friction making some kind of material change, what would it be? Like if only, is there an if only for you? Is there, or maybe it's something that would be stopped, right? Not something that would be provided. Gosh. Um, and I mean, I think that's like a very appropriate question in some ways, because that's part of the conundrum of this collapsed space is like, no, like there is no one thing. And it's really looking at like how intertwined like all of these different narratives actually are. You know, many of them can be true at the same time. Yeah, it's really like looking at the relationships between all of these different systems. I think that's a great answer. All right. Well, Bo, thank you for coming on the pod and chatting with us a bit about your essay and a bit about your work with the Crude Futures Collapsology Group. We're really excited for your book and we'll look forward to talking with you and Richard potentially when that book comes out. In the meantime, people can find out more about what Crude Futures is doing at collapsology.substack.com. Well, thank you, Bo, and we will look forward to speaking to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Ciao. Now we'll hear from Jake Colvin, who reads an abridged version of his essay for the Crude Futures zine, Bodies on the Wheels, Just Stop Oil. You falafel munching tosser. I snarl at the guy sitting down in front of me. You middle-class wanker. You don't even know what you're doing this, do you? I've got to pick up my fucking door from school. I'm beginning to run out of steam. I look to my right at Connor, a young student wearing a grey Arcteryx jacket, currently berating his girlfriend for blocking his way to work, and nod at the guy. Grab his other arm, mate. We walk to either side and take an arm, then begin to drag the long-haired man Tommy across the carpet. Reality! Clara screams from the other side of the room. We both let go of his arms, crouch, and touch the floor. Reality is 4pm on Saturday in the meeting room of a community centre in a small city in the UK with a children's party going on across the corridor. I'm at one of Just Stop Oil's non-violence training sessions, which is compulsory attendance if you want to take part in one of their actions. We've just finished our penultimate roleplay scene. We've been split into two groups, each taking turns to sit in front of traffic on an imaginary road. Next, it's my turn to sit on the carpet and have the mock banner torn out of my hands. I'm looking forward to it. It's a relief to be on the receiving end. As the group coordinator begins shouting in my face and hitting my head with a rolled up newspaper, I feel zen-like through my hangover. I stare ahead and quietly soak it in. I deserve this. Just Stop Oil, or JSO, are a UK-based environmental protest movement. A non-hierarchical coalition operating in autonomous blocks, they are knitted together by weekly meetings in person and online. Since their founding in February 2022, they have spread across the UK. By June, their six regional teams numbered around 100 people apiece. As I write, only six months later, their supporters have been arrested at least 2,000 times. A key moment in this ballooning was JSO's month of sustained actions, October 2022. You've seen the images. Two protesters dangling from the Dartford Crossing Bridge, cake smeared on the face of a King Charles waxwork at Madame Tussauds, and, infamously, a can of soup splattered over Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers, which, on closer inspection, is protected by a glass screen. The latter was an act the situationist artist Guy Debord might have approved of. In 1963, he admired the revolutionary students in Caracas who threw bombs at a police van, transporting paintings by Paul Gauguin and Van Gogh, which had been held at ransom in exchange for the release of political prisoners. The attempted destruction was the true artist's homage to the original spirit of Van Gogh, who depicted the value and struggle of everyday people's lives in his paintings of peasant families and work boots. 
DeBoer approvingly compared the action to Mikhail Bakunin's proposal that insurgents in the Dresden insurrection of 1849 barricade themselves in with paintings from the city's museums as protection from the army's attacking fire. A painting, no matter how large or radical, can't be used as a shield against climate breakdown. So, like the students in Caracas, JSO attacked the art itself to make a point about the value systems its 70 plus million pounds appraisal depends upon. To gasps and shouts from onlookers in London's National Gallery, one of JSO's 21-year-old activists questioned the value of art on a collapsing planet. Is art worth more than life? More than food? More than justice? The moment catapulted JSO into worldwide public consciousness, and the tactic became a source of much debate. Even among climate activists, criticism was immediately levied at the choice of target. Why hadn't they hit out at the oil industry directly? It wasn't the first time JSO had targeted a piece of art, but it's important to contextualise the action within a wider array of tactics they have experimented with, which arise from the recent history of Extinction Rebellion, XR, and Insulate Britain, IB. Unlike XR and IB, the identities of JSO's founders are not publicly known. They also have slicker branding, social media and videography than IB did. Many of the activists are younger, more likely to be students in their early 20s than the retired doctors in IB's videos. Although, like Insulate Britain, their demand seems to be in the name, Just Stop Oil hone in further, calling for the UK government to cease granting new oil and gas licences. More than 100 of these are set to be distributed by the government's North Sea Transition Authority within the next year, an act which Greenpeace has said is possibly unlawful and which it is challenging in court. As I sit at my desk on an introductory JSO video call, watching a woman taking a pause to hold back her tears, it's quite clear this isn't just about exploratory North Sea oil licences. The emphasis in this talk is on truth, June, a speaker from JSO tells us. We went and spoke to a retired scientist, Sir David King, and he said we have three to four years to determine the future of humanity. At this point, her voice cracks again. It's Tuesday, and I'm on the call from my stuffy bedroom on a record-breakingly hot summer's day, suffering through the worst comedown I've had since New Year's Day. I genuinely feel like I might start crying too. June tells us what it means to exceed the two degrees Celsius the IPCC has set as an upper limit for global warming. We're talking about societal collapse, about 100 million refugees. I'm speaking to you on the day that a Boeing 747 that had room for 300 people is going to take off with eight for Rwanda. We already treat refugees so badly. Imagine if this scale goes to 100 million. Will we have fortress Europe? Who can imagine what it's going to be like? She progresses to feedback loops, an ice-free Arctic, the disruption of the Gulf Stream, the Amazon flipping from carbon sink to carbon source, I think to myself, this is perfect. It's hitting all the battered synapses in my brain. Much stronger buzz than my usual Tuesday morning disaster spiral for a carefully curated apocalypse timeline. These are my people. Even when I'd fully recovered, I felt like I was on board with the message. I watched a video filmed before an action. One JSO activist predicts empty food shelves in Tesco and Asda. Another pronounces that children who are alive today will grow up in a world on the brink of collapse. As Jean-Pierre Dupuis writes of enlightened doomsaying, to prevent a catastrophe, one needs to believe in its possibility before it occurs. Therein lies JSO's broader mission. The public must be made to believe in the possibility of collapse, like the movement's activists, to avert its most calamitous effects. Their belief in imminent societal collapse justifies more intense protest actions. JSO haven't blown up a pipeline yet, but they have stepped up considerably from XR. In actions that are closer to the tactics of German climate justice activists Ender Galander, who set up encampments to occupy and block open pit coal mines, JSO have targeted the oil industry directly. They mounted sustained disruption of the Kingsbury oil terminal in Warwickshire and the Navigator fuel terminal in Essex. At both sites, JSO protesters tunnelled under roads leading out of the terminal, forcing them to be shut by police for several days. Activists entered fueling stations and locked themselves to pipework. They unhooked oil tankers from lorry cabs and climbed on top of them to stop drivers leaving the sites. JSO's success in continually replenishing their front lines hinges on an ability to draw on untapped wells of spiritual energy. Britain is an overwhelmingly secular country. We're a deeply ironic people, a nation of piss-takers. Having conviction about anything at all, let alone religion, is usually treated with a combination of amusement and suspicion. 
Yet no one can escape the human urge for meaning, which is becoming more fraught in a world where meaning-making systems are diverging, even polarising. JSO tap into this urge by engaging the facts of climate change on a religious register. They ask potential recruits to consider what their moral duties are at this time in world history. While generating feelings of culpability and guilt, they offer techniques of communal care and possibilities for redemption. Now, Clara says softly, at the opening of our non-violence training, if everyone would like to close their eyes or focus on something in front of them, we are going to do a grounding exercise. First, I want everyone to think of something they're grateful for today. I close my eyes and start to feel grateful for the smashed patty burger I ate last night. I'm glad someone has started doing those around here. They're like a burger kebab hybrid, right up my street. I open my eyes quickly and look around to check everyone else has got theirs closed. Now, concentrate on how your feet are connecting you to the floor, Clara continues. Ritual is an integral part of religion. Go through the motions, even half-heartedly, and your body will begin to believe. In September 2022, JSO released a statement replying to a public letter signed by 250 legal professionals who had agreed to educate themselves on the risks of breaching 1.5C of average global warming and to advise the courts and their clients accordingly. For continuing to represent fossil fuel clients, JSO say these lawyers will face an upcoming day of reckoning. For the lawyers' complicity in a legal system that prosecutes climate protesters instead of the fossil fuel industry, they say, pray for your forgiveness. They ask the lawyers join them and go gracefully into battle by blocking oil refineries and depots until you too are jailed and your face is pushed in the blood and urine in some dark corner of a British prison cell. JSO's religiosity is inspired by Catholic theologian Carmody Gray, who claims the environmental movement needs to break out of that narrow register of the empirical and the numerical and the scientific to instead put forward a vision that could actually motivate and inspire. We must connect the facts of environmental collapse to something that has motivational power because, Gray says, nobody ever really gave their life for just a fact. As well as fire and brimstone, JSO offer a form of martyrdom. The loss of a future for young people, Pakistan's floods, Europe's heat waves, these are not fictions. But to bring these events together into a coherent story of global collapse, and to make this come alive as a politico-effective force, the protesters must be seen to suffer. JSO must be seen to be a cause worth suffering for, to substantiate a loose flock of followers into a spiritual political movement. Part of the martyrdom protesters undergo is a social violence in the self-sacrifice of class privilege. Not all of its activists are middle class, but JSO make a point of referencing the well-to-do jobs of the people who take part in actions. Referring to Dr Patrick Hart, a GP who smashed the screens of petrol pumps at Farrakh services off the M25, JSO urge us to wonder why a GP, his parents, a gardener, a grandmother, a vet, a teacher, an engineer, are prepared to take such disruptive action. Working class people are significantly more likely to have a criminal record and to have been imprisoned than middle class people in the UK. There are jobs in healthcare, banking, finance, law, the military and security you'll be excluded from for having a criminal conviction. To the middle class psyche, a criminal record borders on a form of social death. Willingly getting one is a sacrifice of socio-economic status and mobility, and this is what JSO encourage. Activists are expected to remain at the scene of actions and take individual accountability by being arrested. If they are charged with a crime, they are urged to enter a not guilty plea to take up the court system's resources and test whether a jury will acquit them. The Pontius Pilate figure, dog whistling her way towards JSO's first lethal martyrdom, is far-right Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. In Parliament, she called JSO activists guardian-reading, tofu-eating Wokarati after they blocked the Dartford crossing. It was a cynical, almost self-caricaturing attempt to frame climate collapse as a cultural issue championed by a liberal middle-class elite. JSO anticipated moves along these lines in a blog post, predicting right-wing Tories fueled by Brexit success and black oil money would attempt to frame renewable energy as an attack on our culture and traditions. What the right perhaps recognise is through their opposition to continued fossil fuel extraction, JSO are moving towards opposition to the continuation of capitalism wholesale. When the non-violence training session I attended finished, I put a tick in the box saying I was ready for action. I even asked when I could get my hands on one of those fire extinguishers filled with orange paint. I'll start going through the motions as further research, I thought. 
Then I'll throw my body in front of the wheels and hope some of my guilt is washed away. But when I touched the ground outside the community centre, banal realities began to soak through. If I got a criminal record, would my car insurance premium go up? Could I still work on contract for my old corporate employer if I ever needed to go crawling back? Do I declare it on my visa waiver application if I try to visit the US again? For the next month or so, I went back to my normal life, holding on to the vague sense of complicity in ecological collapse that permeates so many equally mundane life choices. It takes profound strength to stand up in a courtroom and vividly describe your concern for humanity's future and then have your own future curtailed with a prison sentence or a conditional discharge. I see JSO as heroes. For my own part, the collapsologist's path has now led me to off-grid permaculture farms in rural Wales. Permaculture's advocates want to create communal human systems based on regenerative ecological models. In committed forms of low-impact living and in JSO's activism, there is a similar will to extricate yourself from the continuation of normal society. They can both be contemporary responses to confronting collapse head-on and asking, what now? They are also similarly spiritual paths. JSO's activists experience ecological disaster through the sublime personal collapse of self-sacrifice. For now, I need to experience the sublime personal rebuild of an everyday connection to local ecologies. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast, and thank you Richard, Bo, and Jake for sharing your work on this episode. The zine and the game are available now, and you can buy them together as a limited edition set, which also includes an A2 poster designed by Mattis Grosskopfmanis at shop.newmodels.io. For semi-regular Crude Futures updates, subscribe to their newsletter at collapsology.substack.com. For now, we hope you're enjoying these late summer days wherever they may find you. Carly and I are adjusting to the collapse of our pre-baby sleep schedule while powering up for our fall New Models programming. We'll be returning soon with a lost radio play I found and updated for the present. But till then, tell a friend, boost us in the algos wherever you listen, and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com. Yeah.